When we last left Paul, he was crying out, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Paul had looked at his own life. He had looked at uh, the things that he was supposed to do that he just couldn't do. He just, he couldn't do the good things he was supposed to. He looked at the evil things that he didn't want to do, the things he knew were wrong, the things he knew would be offensive to God and hurtful to others. And he did those things. And so he comes to the end of himself and he says, basically, if salvation's about me, I'm hopelessly lost. We pick up in chapter 8 where we're going to read in just a couple moments. There's an astounding about face. Paul comes to a very different uh, spot in his spiritual life where he is reveling in the grace of God. And so I've entitled the sermon, The Greatest Statement in the History of Mankind, because I really believe that it, that it encompasses the most important thing that's ever been said to humanity. Now, there's lots of great quotes in the history of the world. When you, when you go back and you look into antiquity, you look into recent history, uh, modern days, there, there are a lot of you know, incredible things that have been said because words are very powerful. If you put the right word out at the right moment, the right phrase, you know, it can capture the essence uh, of, of everything that maybe even is going on in the entire world. Uh, you think of Winston Churchill, the great orator of the 20th century, who had so many great speeches, but, but maybe one that stands out for people, uh, my generation a little, little bit older, is when he said, never in the history of human conflict has so much been owed to so few by so many. So he talked about how the, the nation of Great Britain was literally saved by, by their fighter pilots, staving off the, the German uh, invasion as it came from the sky as Great Britain was attacked. Um, more recently, you think of maybe John F. Kennedy, who said, don't ask what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. That's a pretty incredible statement. Those words have a lot of power and a lot of meaning. More recently, you think of George Bush when he said, read my lips, no new taxes, right before we got a lot of new taxes. But that's not the point this morning. But words can conjure up images in our minds. If I had a kind of a tall stovetop hat or stove hat and, and dressed in a, in, a, in a beard this morning, and I said four score and seven years ago, you would think that's a really bad impression of Abraham Lincoln, but one of the most profound speeches in the history of our nation. It's not just in real life. You think of movies, and I was talking to some folks in between the services, and we were comparing notes on movie quotes and how they kind of stick in your mind. I went to A&E and looked at their most famous, you know, their top 100 quotes of all time. I, I can't do the first one in church because it has a bad word. You know, it's Red uh, Butler saying, frankly, my dear, I don't care anymore, but he uses a word he, he shouldn't use. But you think of, you know, may the force be with you was, was a big one. Uh, you know, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. That's something maybe you've heard. Uh, Tom Hanks in Apollo 13, Houston, uh, we have a, a problem. My favorite was like rank number 45. I didn't realize that it was that low, but uh, it, it's in the movie Jaws. And I watch Jaws once a year to remind myself not to go in the ocean. But <laughs> Chief Brody, uh, who's played by Roy Scheider, he, he's, they're doing a chum line trying to find the shark and he's throwing the stuff out the back of the boat, and the shark just kind of comes up and then goes back down. He's the only one that sees it. The captain doesn't see it. Uh, the other guy that's with him doesn't see it. He's the only one, and he turns and he looks up at the captain. He kind of staggers into where he's at the wheelhouse driving the boat, and he goes, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> and boy, was he right. Um, words are powerful. They stick with you. And the words that Paul utters in, and writes and authors in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 are so completely different than how he ends chapter 7. 
that you have to ask yourself, what happened? How did Paul go from this moment of despair to one of the most glorious statements that have ever been written or spoken in the entire history of mankind? And one of the most important things that could be said to us as well. So we're going to follow up Paul's cry of despair of who can rescue me with this, with this astounding about face and, and see what's behind it and ask what the application may be for us this morning. Romans chapter 8, just four verses, the first four verses. Hear the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for a moment. Father, our prayer is for illumination understanding. Father, our prayer is that you would take your word and make it alive in our hearts and our minds. Father, you know that I cannot adequately explain the words that are in this passage, these all-important words of life. One of the most profound statements that has ever been given to mankind is in this first verse, and there is no way that I can do this justice. Father, you know my sin. You know how far short I fall of following you. Lord, you know that there are times when I I go the opposite direction on purpose. Father, if we're trusting in the holiness of the pastor, we should all go home right now. Father, we come seeking your truth, your holiness, your beauty, your glory. So, Father, we pray that you would meet us here in this place. Father, for those of us who come supremely confident of our own goodness, I pray that you would Knock the the legs out from under us this morning by your grace and by your love. That you would show us that there is no room to have confidence in our own flesh. It is only by your powerful grace that we can be redeemed. Father, for those of us who are here this morning despairing, who, who have all but given up, Lord, I pray that you would remind us this morning that it's not by our strength. It was never intended to be that way and that we are despairing because we're looking in the wrong place. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. May we see his glory, his truth, his compassion, his mercy. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I have four observations about this text. And the first one is uh, the greatest verse in the Bible. I've said to kind of in the, in the title that is the greatest statement in the history of mankind. Now, I know that, that some of you probably have uh, other verses that are your favorite verse or maybe your life verse. Um, I understand that all of Scripture is, is God's breathed, authoritative word for our, for our lives. So you don't need to come up to me after the service and say, Tom, I think your theology is off. All the verses of the Bible are important. I, I understand that. But this contains one of the most important truths we will know. And so I, I, I've, more than anything, I've just kind of wanted to capture our imagination with the, the best verse in the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why am I so enamored with this verse? Part of it is probably because of what I do for a living. See, I, I have the opportunity and the honor, quite frankly, it is an honor to, to be with people as they wrestle with different issues in their life. 
And I can tell you from observing my own life, I can tell you from observing my own family, I can tell you from observing this spiritual family and other folks, everybody wrestles with condemnation. There's something in everyone's life about which they feel shame, they feel uh, despair, they feel anguish, they feel a sense of hopelessness, they feel that they are somehow fundamentally wrong which is what condemnation says. There's something wrong about us. It might be that you feel condemnation because there's some baggage in your past life. Maybe someone hurt you in some deep way and you came away from that experience thinking there must be something wrong with me or that person wouldn't have hurt me. Maybe it's, it's failure of some kind. Maybe you, you started a business and it failed or you've been in a marriage that has failed or you look at your children and you think maybe you're failing as a, as a parent. Maybe you look at, at your, your faith and you say, you know what, I don't think I'm in, in the right relationship with God, but everyone I've ever met who's willing to be honest would acknowledge the fact that condemnation is something that can hold a stranglehold grip on our lives. And so we come to this verse and we say, is this a pipe dream of some kind? I mean, Paul, are, are you tossing something out there that just absolutely isn't realistic? Or is this something that we can actually embrace for our own lives? Now, the way Paul structures this sentence in the Greek is actually really important. And I, I don't particularly like it when, you know, we as pastors say, now the Greek says, but in this case, it really is actually important. Because the structure of this phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation, just stop with, with those several words right there, means this. Literally, the structure says, not a single one of any kind. In other words, every reason God has to condemn you is gone. It's off the books. It doesn't exist anymore. The things that, that, that you believe separate you from God, they're, they've been erased. How is that possible? I, one way maybe it's possible is we bury our heads in the sand to ignore our sin because there's no way that if we look deep into our hearts, we can say I, we can stand before a righteous and holy God on our own merit. Did God just take an eraser and erase everything bad that I've ever done, thought, or said, and everything bad that I will think, do, or say? Yes, he did. He did it for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the condemnation that I deserve, which is just, I've earned that condemnation. In Christ Jesus, it's erased. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's a new identity. That, that by faith, and we'll build on this in the next few verses, by faith, as we look to Christ for our salvation, we receive the grace of God by that faith in Jesus, and we see him as our substitute. In other words, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. God isn't turning a blind eye on my sin. God isn't ignoring all the things that you've done and thought and said in your life that have been despicable, that have been evil, that, that maybe you've hidden. Maybe a lot of folks don't know things that you've done in your life, but you do. God isn't going to say, well, let's just pretend those never happened. Jesus went to the cross, and he said, Father, here is my perfection. Here is my unstained, perfect character. I want to trade it for everything that Tom Ricks has ever done or will do that's awful and evil and against you. Give me his identity, give me his sin, put it on me and give me the penalty that he deserves. And that's exactly what God did. You want to know who God saw when he looked at his son on the cross? He saw my face. He saw your face. 
He saw our sin. And it made him so angry, he turned his back on his son, and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was in hell paying for our sins. Hell, not the physical hell. He was in hell because he was absent from his father, and he was condemned. That's why there's no more condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus. We have a new identity. And friends, we need to begin to learn to think this way. If Jesus was my substitute on the cross, God saw Jesus, saw me and Christ on the cross. Now, because Jesus has paid the penalty, who does God see when he looks at me? He sees the perfection of his son. You see, what we really need to learn from this verse is we need to look at ourselves in the way God looks at us. Every one of my three children, somewhere along the line, several occasions, they've messed up. They've blown it. They've done something wrong. They've disobeyed or, or they've, they've failed at something. And they felt this spirit of condemnation. And, and as we talk about those things and we work through the issues, there's some point in the conversation where we get to where I say, you know, Nate or Katie or Jordan, you need to see yourself the way I see you. You need to see what I see when I look at you. I see my precious child. I, I see the one in whom I love, the one I would die for you. I would give everything I have to protect you, to care for you, to love you, to nurture you. You're mine. And I would dare say that the vast majority of the people in this room do not equate that emotion that you feel right now with your relationship with God. Why? Because we're still living under the false impression that there's a piece of condemnation that is left. And friends, we must embrace the truth in this verse and see ourselves in Christ Jesus the way in which God sees us. Paul doesn't say this is universal salvation. He doesn't say for those who are outside of Christ, if you've, if you've rejected Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus as your Savior, this verse is not for you. But if you've put your faith in Christ, Paul says... There's a new identity. There's a new truth here. There is no condemnation, not a single one of any kind, which leads him to verse 2. And when the second observation, I have free at last, and I've kind of stole that from Dr. Martin Luther King, but in Romans 8, 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Notice there's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus. It will continue to pop up over and over again. From what? From the law of of sin and death. If you remember Dr. King's speech, maybe you saw it on TV, or maybe you had the the privilege of actually being there, or, or you've studied it in history, you know that Dr. King was basically saying, if we will work together, if we will lay aside our differences, if we can can utilize our power and our intellect and our goodwill and our determination, we can join hands and stamp out racism. Now, that was a wonderful speech. Those were incredible truths that Dr. King was sharing because racism is a man-made problem. But our problem with sin, which is also man-made, is not going to be solved by us joining hands and trying harder and working more to be better people. Paul says we've been set free. How? We've been set free by the law of the spirit of life. There's a power outside of you and me that has done something in our hearts as disciples of Jesus. And Paul is saying, I'm free at last by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of life has rescued me. It has brought new life into my being. Where I was once dead in my sin, 
Now the Spirit, the very breath of God, breathes new life into me. I'm going to give you the theological term for this. It's called regeneration. Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit of God enters your heart and gives you the ability to do something you could never do on your own, which is put your faith in Christ for salvation. You say, wait, I thought I chose God before he chose me. Not a chance in the world, friends. You never would. You never will. I never would, never will. If God doesn't make my heart alive, I refuse his grace my entire life. But when the Spirit of God comes into my heart, it's like that V8 moment. Oh my goodness, there's a Savior. And he loves me. And he's given himself for me. And I now was once spiritually dead. Now I'm alive. Since we're kind of on, uh, on different movie quotes, I, I'm not going to quote from this movie, but the best all-time comedy ever of any movie ever is Young Frankenstein. Uh, we can argue that if some of you have a better comedy you want to put out there, but, but I've studied Young Frankenstein in depth, and so I, I'm ready to go if you want to talk about it. But, but there's a scene where Gene Wilder is playing the young Dr. Frankenstein, as he calls himself, has, has this, you know, this huge body laid out on the table. He's got all these electrodes coming in, the lightning's flashing, and he's pulling switches, and he's pounding on the, on the, on the chest of this dead body. He's saying, give my creature life. And that's what God does. He doesn't beat in our chest, but he sends a spirit into our lives, into our deadness, into the darkness, into the condemnation that we feel. And now the spirit of God says, did you know about Jesus and his love for you? and his compassion, and his grace, and his mercy, and you can be free at last. And we go, I get it. The light has come on. Why? Because a power apart from me has set me free. Which leads me to just, I think Paul uses the first part of verse 3 as a reminder of the unstoppable power of God. Paul says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Paul simply reinforces the truth he's already mentioned in verse 2. He says the law is good. We know that it shows the perfection of God. It shows us our sin. It shows us our need for a Savior. It's very good on a lot of different levels, but it's no good as as a means of salvation. The law is powerless. Our sin has shown it for self for what it is and shown it that we can never keep the law perfectly. But God is not hamstrung by sin. God is not put off by death, by our flesh, by our wrong way of thinking and living. He is not limited by sin. He destroys its stranglehold on us through Christ. Our God is a powerful God who saves. We sang that early this morning, and it is true, and we should sing it every day of our lives and our hearts. We have been redeemed by the all-powerful one, the one that has no weakness in him. And when he saves you, you stay saved. Your life cannot be taken away from him, which we'll see later on in chapter 8. Again, while we're on the theme of movies, my favorite crime movie is The Godfather. What a classic. There's a scene in The Godfather early on in the movie where, where Don Corleone is in his study and there's a young man that's coming to him who, who is his godson. And he's saying, Godfather, I'm, you know, he's this great singer out in Hollywood. And he goes, I, I got this part in this movie. It'll just make my career, but this producer won't, won't give me that part. And he's back in New York talking to his godfather. He says, if I could just get that part, everything would be okay. And the godfather kind of chides him and then he says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And I'll, it'll all be fine. And he says, what are you going to do, God? How, how are you gonna, you're in New York, he's in L.A., how are you going to do that? And the Godfather says, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And those of you who have seen the movie know how he plays it out. 
But the Godfather is a man of influence. The Godfather is a man of power. His influence can stretch from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so he tells his Godson, you have nothing to worry about while you're under my care. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The power of God for your salvation and for mine is unstoppable. Which leads to my final observation. A recipe to undo disaster. You know, you hear the phrase, a recipe for disaster. I was reading a study on if you leave like an eight-year-old boy alone, how long it takes him to get in trouble. So like if he gets home after school and nobody's home, the average time that an eight-year-old boy is going to get took to get in trouble is like eight seconds, you know. <laughs> and you would call that a recipe for disaster, right? So this is a recipe to undo disaster because we were the, we were the eight-year-old boy that was left alone and we just have made an absolute mess of things through our sinfulness and our brokenness. But what has happened? How did God take care of all this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's not saying that Jesus was sinful there. In fact, he's making a point that he wasn't. He's saying in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he was human, but he was perfect. And he came for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who? What us? Those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirement of the law has been met. The penalty that is demanded for my sin must be paid. And this is terrible news. This is an unmitigated disaster. If I have to pay for my sins, it will take all of eternity, and I will never accomplish the task. We are guilty. But God's perfect Son came in human form. And God's perfect judgment was met at the cross so that you and I could have new life. That's the equation. The recipe to undo disaster is God's perfect son, Jesus, in human form, plus God's perfect judgment at the cross equals new life for the believer. And the result is what? That, that we now walk upright. We're now animated. We have life. We walk not according to the flesh, not according to the old deadness in which we once lived, but now we walk according to the Spirit. We're able to walk by the empowering presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And friends, that's what Romans 8 is all about. Romans 8 is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. In Romans 1 through 7, Paul, chapters 1 through 7, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit five times. In chapters 9 through 16, he mentions the Holy Spirit nine times, okay? So 14 times in all of the other chapters of Romans. In Romans 8, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 22 times. We have our topic for the next several weeks. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, is going to help us understand his work in our lives. He's going to teach us how to walk. Cindy was uh, talking with me yesterday. I just gotten back from taking Jordan down to college at Alabama, and there's a, a young uh, girl, young lady in one of her classes who had to have surgery because one leg was was like uh, like eight or nine inches longer than the other. It was a, it was a serious problem, and she had a second surgery for it. And, and I I think what, according to Cindy, the doctor said it was okay. Uh, they got they got done what they wanted to get done, but she's going to be laid up for like eight months. Think about that. Eight months where you can't put weight on that leg. Think about the atrophy that's going to take place in those muscles. Think about, about, about what it's going to feel like when she finally begins to be able to, to kind of put weight on that and, and start again. She's going to have to learn to walk all over again. 
Any of us that have had a, a parent or a loved one go through a stroke and, and they've had to learn to, to talk again, they've had to go to a speech therapist or, or to, a, to a physical therapist to start to use their muscles again. Paul in Romans 8 is going to teach us how to use our spiritual muscles. We're going to learn to take some baby steps. We're going to see that this tremendous statement that there's no condemnation is because the Holy Spirit of God is going to come. He's going to show us and indwell us and teach us what it means to be in relationship with God. But for our purposes today, we've got to get the foundation right. And the foundation is a starting point. It's Romans 8, chapter 1. And, and, I, and I don't give assignments very often, but I'm giving you an assignment, and, this, and I'm serious about this. Everybody in this room, and the, and the 9 o'clock service had to do it too, so I'm not picking on you guys. Everybody has to memorize this verse before next Sunday, okay? You have to memorize this verse. Now, if I'm going to expect you to do that, I'm going to help you with it. So everybody look at the screen, and out loud, let's practice. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everybody close their eyes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Open your eyes. Anybody peek? Okay. A couple people maybe kind of sort of peek. All right. You got it. You're done. See, you finished the assignment. Class isn't even over yet. Say that verse to yourself every day. Say that verse to yourself 12 times a day. Speak that verse into your heart when you feel the weight of your sin, when you feel the condemnation that lingers because your enemy wants to destroy your spirit. And say to yourself, preach to yourself every day, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So put your name in that sentence. That's the building block to start because we will then begin to realize how this new power resides in our lives as disciples. And we can begin to take those first steps and learn to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Continue to read chapter 8. If you haven't started already, start reading chapter 8. If you don't know the Bible, we've got a bunch of them out on the table out there. Ask the Father to teach you about the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks as we study this passage. Because there are a lot of great quotes in the history of the world. In fact, I didn't even read you the best quote of all the quotes. My, I have a new favorite quote. It's by Albert Einstein. This is tremendous. The difference between stupidity and genius is that genius has limits. Is that, think about it a little bit. You'll catch on. Isn't that great? That's just a tremendous statement. The difference between stupidity and genius has limits. There are a lot of great quotes. There are a lot of great words. Words are powerful. But if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus first foundational thought you need to have every moment of every day about your own soul. Because as a believer, you are in Christ Jesus. This passage applies to you. There is no more condemnation. Not a single one. Let's pray.